quantity versus quality. An age-old quandary that brings especially true for the pop music rivalry between Prince and Michael Jackson. They ruled the 1980s, but would the 1990s and all the musical innovations that this brilliant decade produced be kind to his purple majesty and the king of pop? The latter produced just two albums in this period, while the former cranked out 12. We'll dive into all of them, compare them, analyze them, and, tell you which ones you should listen to. As far as Michael is concerned, let's just say his personal problems started to outweigh his musical output. Welcome to Chapter 4 of the critically acclaimed, award-winning, multi-million streaming series, Prince vs. Michael Jackson. Welcome, everyone, to the 22nd, yes, 22nd edition of the Curmudgeon Rock Report. This is Christopher O'Connor coming to you from suburban Houston. And with me, as always, is Arturo Andrade coming to you from Guangzhou, South Korea. And we host the podcast made just for you. This belongs to you. Who are you? You are the rock geek iconoclastic outsider looking for a safe haven in a mainstream world that's turned your once-celebrated solace into a niche. Well, here on the Curmudgeon Rock Report, we not only celebrate this niche, we live it in full color and at full force. And hey, there's a good chance you'll learn some stuff that you never knew before. Be sure to join our Curmudgeon League community. Subscribe to our podcast on Spotify, Apple, Google, Stitcher, and all the other places where you find all the other podcasts. Drop us a line at curmudgeonrock at gmail.com. Follow us on Twitter at curmudgeonpod. And coming soon, you'll be able to become part of our own private Facebook group where you can share thoughts, musings, and random excitement with fellow travelers among the curmudgeonly path to rock and roll goodness. How you doing, Arturo? Good. I, I like how you mentioned the word uh, niche. Dude, my, my entire music collection of this year is practically niche. <laughs> yeah. I, I don't have much mainstream stuff in here. <laughs> uh, speaking of, of old things that are starting to disturb me a little bit, uh, it's worth noting that now is a season to celebrate what is now some really old, uh, reverent, and revered uh, music. Now, uh, we're in a season where uh, Let It Be, the, both the album by the Beatles, and a new Peter Jackson remix of the old uh, documentary uh, featuring the uh, disastrous making of the film are coming back. We're like uh, five, five hours of extra footage. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> and then uh, you've also, remember, because everybody like talks about 1971 as if it's the greatest year of all time. You got to remember, folks, that's now 50 years ago. And like Arturo and I are in our mid 40s. We're both 46. Uh, That is definitely older than us. But think about it this way uh, to our fellow Gen Xers. We graduated from college in the spring of 1997. Uh, What we're doing now would be like the bunch of us sitting around and saying, man, Frank Sinatra really left the legacy back there in 1947 you know, with all these hits that he had that. So think about it that way. Um, 
yeah, uh, good things age well. But yeah, we are now in the uh, official jazz phase of rock and roll. Yeah, I mean, rock music is now basically, I mean, it's its a niche genre. It's gone the way of jazz. Um, there will always mm-hmm. be rock bands making music and putting stuff out there. There will always be rock bands uh, once this, once the this virus gets tones down a bit. Yeah. Um, band, uh, bands performing live. It's just not going to be big anymore. It's, it's not, no, it's no longer part of the pop cultural zeitgeist. No, and, not uh, really. Yeah. Uh, although, I mean, yes, you'll get big, uh, big as in Rolling Stone might do a feature article on you, or you might win a Grammy, see St. Vincent, Brandy, Brandy Carlisle, and one of the artists that we'll be covering shortly. Uh, but that's, that's about the heights that you'll reach. Otherwise, You'll be uh, living, hopefully, again, off your T-shirts and your ticket sales and making enough money to, like, you know, go into the studio real quick and, you know, cut yourself uh, like some some Pro Tools goodness. <laughs> well, speak, speaking of talking about the past, uh, like I said in this episode's teaser, we are going to be talking, we'll, we'll in, indulge in Chapter 4 of this award-winning, critically acclaimed series of ours prince versus michael jackson and chapter four will be the night the entire 1990s we're going to compare them we're going to analyze them we're going to talk about them but before before we continue with our and our little tangent of old let's get to the new why yes (laughs) here we go into the great beyond accompanied (laughs) by some spooky odd music actually (laughs) that's some cheap stock music folks but it takes us into the realm of the parallel universe and in the parallel universe uh you know i always say that it's kind of like uh the 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 upside down or the flip side or the blue is green you know the more i think about it fuck it the parallel universe is the universe where we make the rules that means arturo and me and you as our listeners and loyal followers we make the rules. Okay, who do we want uh, on the billboards? Who do we want in the stadiums? Who do we want on the cover of Rolling Stone? And, and who are we revering as a culture? And we do this by exploring uh, new albums uh, by these folks. And so each of us takes a turn here. Arturo, who are you celebrating in the Parallel Universe this week? Well, the one I'm celebrating, and of course, celebrating their new album. That's what we're, t- we're doing. This Parallel Universe's album reviews. Let's not forget that. Yes. So uh, this is the band I'm talking about is um, Parquet Courts. They are one of the most consistently great and consistently evolving uh, American bands of the last decade. Um, yeah. And they're, they're an indie rock quartet that originally hailed from Texas they actually formed when the two uh, singing, songwriting guitar players, Austin Brown and Andrew Savage, met when they were students at the University of North Texas in uh, Denton, Texas. However, yes. the, ba- the band now resides in New York City, and the album in question is their latest release, Sympathy for Life, which came out last month. Now, when people I recommend Parquet Courts to ask me how to describe them, my immediate reaction is imagine pavement transported to 1970s New York and hanging out with a punk new wave CBGB scene, particularly the talking heads, Richard Hell faction of that scene, right? Correct. So um, 
it's hard to make that simple comparison with the with Parquet Quartz's recent albums. Uh, their previous album, 2018's Wide Awake, began introducing funk and ambient grooves to their, you know, their usual angular, nerdy punk. But uh, with this new album, they dive headfirst into a swimming pool of funk, dance beats, and trippy dub reggae. And yes, it works fucking beautifully. Yes, it does. Um, ask me to describe Parquet Quartz now. I'd say this album more or less takes late 1980s, early 1990s Manchester dance rock, uh, the Stone Roses and the Happy Mondays thing, but leaning more toward the Mondays, and marries it to the avant funk of Brian Eno era Talking Heads, that 1978, 79, 80 period which they, when they put out their best work. And combine that while the specter of kraut rock, particularly the grooves of can. Uh, hover above this, uh, what I call like an infectious union, really. Yeah, there, there really is no shortage of uh, of references that yeah. uh, that we can make. I mean, we can make a whole episode out of like find the reference in, in this new Parquet <laughs> Courts record. It's pretty awesome. Yeah. Um, and possibly just as interesting as the album itself is how the band was inspired to make it. Uh, in interviews, Austin Brown, like I said, one of the one of the band's two guitarists and one of their singers and co-writer, uh, he mentioned attending dance party nights at the well-known venue, The Loft, in New York City's East Village. Uh, and he described his experience there as, uh, in an interview, quote, as subversive, anti-establishment, progressive, and also the most enriching American psychedelic experience that has been created. This was something I really wanted to carry into the process of creating our new record, end quote. And for those of you with sharp ears, you will recognize The Loft as the location of David Mancuso's infamous dance parties in, hmm. the, early, in the early 1970s that essentially gave birth to disco. Yeah. Um, in the 1990s, Mancuso moved the party nights to a smaller location on Avenue B and held uh, three to five dance parties per year. Um, and that's probably where Andrew, oh, sorry, Austin Brown went to. Um, and Cuso died in 2016, but uh, eager concert promoter, promoters kept the loft experience going on until, of course, the COVID-19 pandemic hit. So, but anyway, back to Parquet Courts. Um, Andrew Savage, the band's other guitarist and lead singer, mentioned in interviews that his, his inspiration for this album was working out at the gym while tripping on LSD. Nice. <laughs> he liked to drop acid and exercise. And uh, he said the experience inspired him to write a bunch of songs that appeared and uh, on the album. And he actually touted LSD as a quote-unquote performance-enhancing drug. Seriously. Yeah. Uh, so for his part, Savage mentioned uh, being inspired for this album by uh, Can and Canned Heat. Uh, I don't, <laughs> okay, I, that's I, great. I, that's gotta be, that's gotta be a joke. <laughs> yeah, no, it's, you know? it's it's great though. <laughs> yeah. Anyway, choice tracks on this album: "Waiting for a Downtown Pace," which is the first single and the, and the first song. Is this like supreme dance rock? That's like the best the best song that Sean Ryder and the Happy Mondays never wrote. <laughs> um, 
Another good one is Plant Life, which is probably my uh, my favorite. Um, is a quasi instrumental. There's some muffled spoken word in the background, and it's like a, this hypnotic slice of a uh, ambient house music that wouldn't be out of place on Brian Eno and David Burns' "My Life in the Bush of Ghosts." It really sounds like it's taken straight out from there. Um, you have an, uh, uh, another song, um, the funky like danceable legacy of early 1980s New York post-punk bands like Liquid Liquid and Bush Tetras. They show up in tracks like Zoom Out and the title track, Sympathy for Life. Um, the songs Homo Sapien and Black Widow Spider are probably the only two tracks that like that really recall that raucous, angular indie rock of their earlier sound. So um, to conclude... Like I, I've always said that the true mark of a great band slash artist is that they must have a streak of at least three great albums in a row. Um, Sympathy for Life is not only an almost radical reinvention of the parquet court sound, but it's also the fifth consecutive banger of an album from this quartet. Yeah, highly, def- recommend, highly recommended. One of my top 10 albums of the year. Yeah, definitely. They are on a serious roll. Uh, and uh, I just checked my notes from my own exploration of this record. I also wrote down as uh, possible reference points, uh, Spoon and Franz Ferdinand. Sure. Yeah, I can see that in there, yeah. too. Yeah, there's a there's a lot of that kind of uh, like you said, it, if, it, if it's dancey and British or from New York. Uh, and like you said, probably on acid, it's in this record. Um, yeah. Uh, you know, I really, really do uh, enjoy this record. I've been uh, listening to it and uh, it's, you know, it's my kind of stuff. It's kind of like uh, structured slop in, in yeah. a lot of ways and uh, just really clever, though. I mean, obviously, it's not as uh, as straightforward and as banging and as uh, indie-rific as the stuff they were doing in 2013, 2014. Uh, but it's like you said, they're evolving and they're uh, they're fearless. Yeah. Yeah. In in terms of that there. And, you know, they, you know, they just look like, you know, you look at promotional photos of them, they just look like wise asses and, (laughs) and, and they write like wise asses and they play like wise asses, which is probably why uh, they're such a great band. And uh, one of the King bands of the parallel universe go back uh, several episodes ago when we gave you the 20 uh, best uh, artists that exist on this side of the uh, celestial fence. And you'll find that Parquet Courts was on it. Mm, true. Yep. And speaking of that list. Yep. The next uh, band. Yes. Uh, the artists that I will be talking about here, uh, they are uh, on their way. They're kind of reaching that status that I talked about of you can get a decent feature well uh, appearance in a Rolling Stone or a Vanity Fair. Yeah. And, and, maybe won a Grammy, which they already have. Uh, We're talking about the war on drugs and their new album. I don't live here uh, anymore. So uh, let's explore this uh, a little bit. Uh, So Adam Granducio is part of this Philadelphia rock scene of 15 or so years ago. uh, That is kind of our six degrees of, uh, well, where uh, yeah. Arturo covered Steve Gunn uh, last week, and uh, you'll hear us uh, drop love for Kurt Vile uh, often uh, in, over the course of this uh, podcast. But Granducio and Vile used to be in this band together, The War on Drugs, 
Uh, they started it. Vile lasted for, I think, half of the first record or something. And then Grandusiel took over. Uh, he's a wonderkind. And let me tell you a little bit about uh, him and about this album. Uh, so he's a Philadelphia boy. Uh, Grandusiel is now 42 years old. Yeah. Uh, he, he's a new father. And in his real life, you can say that he's running to and not running away. In his musical life, though, he makes it sound like he's not so sure which way he's running. Now, no surprise there. Uh, the lyrical themes of self-doubt and romantic angst and uh, inertia have made Grandusiel something of a quote-unquote indie legend over the past 15 years or so. Now that I'm a 46-year-old newly married man, uh, this M.O., of Grandusiel's makes his music uh, and the war on drugs resonate with me much more acutely and much more poignantly. Now, take this line from the hook of the title track, uh, I Don't Live Here Anymore, where he uh, sings, I guess my memories run wild. Like when we went to see Bob Dylan, we danced to Desolation Row. But I don't live here anymore, but I got no place to go. Now, I can kind of relate to that uh, in the sense that uh, I don't live in that simpler, goofier place anymore either. And hell, the truth, I really don't want to. But obviously, neither does he. And that's the kind of spiritual, to use that word again, inertia that spreads like a blanket all over. I don't want to live here anymore. It's kind of a not coming of age record, but it's one of those, oh, I've reached this point. And I'm still trying to figure out what I'm what I'm turning into, and it's a it's a more mature, uh, more urgent version of a lot of the kind of things that Grandusiel's been doing all along through the Warren Drugs catalog. Uh, now, here's the most um, biggest and most immediate difference that uh, folks most folks will notice about this record, uh, Grandusiel, and we'll focus on him by name because the number of different people listed as session players on this album's liner notes. They don't quite rival Steely Dan's Asia, but they kind of, you know, they come close enough. Uh, he's decided to present it all musically in a much more straightforward and blatantly reverent way than ever before. Go back to 2014. Now, while the stretchy, gorgeous, and reverb-heavy uh, sound of that year's perfectly named Lost in the Dream uh, revealed influences born from Springsteen, Petty, uh, Mellencamp, and all the other regular guy rock heroes of Grandusio's mid-80s youth. Uh, this time, he goes all, all, all in on the keyboard-driven grandeur of all of those guys, and then some. Now, just for fun, here's an exercise I suggest. Uh, play Springsteen's No Surrender, and then play The War on Drugs Wasted from this record back-to-back. Pretty close, right? Uh, but it goes even further than that. If you focus intently enough on that title track, uh, I don't live here anymore, you can hear the faintest quote of Tears for Fears Head Over Heels. Hell, Tango in the Night version of Lindsey Buckingham would be proud of some of this stuff and some of these arrangements. Uh, once upon a time, uh, the war of, uh, on drugs was as much of a fever dream as it was a band. Uh, the songs, while structurally sound and often moving in and of themselves, uh, lived in a cloud of reverb and purposeful sonic grandeur. Meanwhile, and, you know, Mr. Grandusiel, uh, you know, he uh, made sure to, again, you know, he would uh, hide his voice 
uh, among uh, all of the instruments and all of that in, uh, inherent melody. Uh, but now, uh, here's why this album, this particular album, may stick out in our collective consciousness uh, more than any other War on Drugs record, say, in about 10 years or so. Uh, his voice is now wholly unobscured, uh, and the gentlest of album, album openers that I've heard in a long time, uh, Living Proof, uh, is another uh, one of those things that's going to make this thing go uh, front and center. Uh, Grandusio, he's no longer embedding his voice, like I said, cleverly within those songs, uh, snaking guitars and echoing keys. Uh, it's way out in front now. Uh, it's a little raspy and, and uh, world-weary, uh, and it's very, very vulnerable in its tone. Uh, and here in this opener, Living Proof, uh, he pitches us a musical curveball to start with, uh, with a spare and uh, naked acoustic guitar and piano sprinkle intro. And he gives us equally naked and clear as a bell singing. And he ends it with an awesomely evocative closing guitar solo. Wait, now, is this like a Wilco tribute uh, all of a sudden? Uh, nope. The rest of the album goes back to that pure boss level stadium sized ambition. Uh, wow. Uh, what a compelling listen and one that keeps revealing surprises and growing and growing and growing and growing on me. What say you? Yeah, what I say is that, um, well, first of all, uh, we referenced uh, um, Lost in the Dream. That was kind of their breakthrough album in 2014. Yes. Um, the one that they won the Grammys for was A Deeper Understanding from 2017. Yes. Mm -hmm. That's a very good album, too. Um, but it's basically the Lost in the Dream part two, you know? Yes, yeah, um, it is. Uh, for the one that I really, really recommend, if you're really interested in the war on drugs, besides this new album, is the one they did in 2011 called Slave Ambient. Yes, uh, it's very a good. Fan, it's a fantastic record. It sounds very different than what they're doing now. Um, it does It does have the, you know, the same formula that I've always said about the war on drugs, but it's got a distinctly Dylan vibe. This is before he became obsessed with Springsteen and Petty. He was still hanging on. He was still hanging on to Dylan in 2011. Yeah. So that album sounds like it's like a psychedelic Dylan record. <laughs> yeah. You know? But um, that, that's a good as, description, actually. Yeah. yeah. As for this album, um, listen, I've always said the war on drugs basic formula is you take 1980s uh, American heartland rock, you know, Springsteen, Petty, maybe a dash of Mellencamp, um, combine that with like kraut rock rhythms. I hate using the word kraut rock, but anyway, kraut rock rhythms. And you dose it all in woozy, fuzzy, reverby, psychedelic guitar. And like you, what you said, I agree with what you said. What makes this album stick out is that it took that formula and they just cut out the psychedelia. Anyway, folks, uh, we definitely encourage you to check out uh, The War on Drugs, their new album, I Don't Live Here uh, Anymore. Uh, really, really good stuff from an extremely talented uh, singer and songwriter and multi-instrumentalist, Adam Grandusiel. Uh, one of the heroes of the parallel universe. And and we're going from a one modern day hero to uh, two old time heroes. As yes. We will... <laughs> yes, we are now officially leaving the parallel universe and coming back into our universe, which in this case means for better or for uh, worse uh, in, in several uh, different ways, I guess, arguably. But anyway, uh, Arturo, tell us what's coming next. Yes. Coming up next is the riveting fourth installment of our epic 
award-winning, critically acclaimed series chronicling the parallel careers of the two male titans of 1980s pop. Of course, that being Michael Jackson and Prince. Now, in the last episode, we covered the late 1980s period, dovetailing into 1990, when Michael Jackson sustained his world dominance as the king of pop with the blockbuster Bad Album and its slew of hit singles. But cracks in the Jacko armor of his persona started to show in his increasing obsession with plastic surgery, the unnatural whitening of his skin, and his public yet increasingly awkward fondness for young children. Eesh. Prince, on the other hand, while not quite as commercially successful as Michael, started to creatively and artistically surpass him with the masterpiece Sign of the Times and the killer soundtrack to the movie Batman. By this point, Prince became the critic's darling while Michael became the tabloid's obsession. Uh, As the 1990s commenced, both artists are established legends in the world of R&B and pop, and they have passionate fan bases, but they are no longer leaders of the pop culture zeitgeist that they were throughout the previous decade. Uh, Michael Jackson will, will go on to release only two albums in the 90s, And while they sold extremely well uh, compared to any other artist, they brought in diminishing returns for uh, Jackson's lofty standards. Were they any good? Were they really any good? Well, folks, the curmudgeons will discuss and convey to you. Unfortunately for Michael, his music at this time was overshadowed by his physical transfiguration and the mass media's uh, focus on it and also overshadowed by charges of sexual abuse toward young boys that started to shine a light on his pedophilia. Uh, As for Prince, an already prolific artist started to get even more prolific, leading to constant confrontations with his record label, Warner Brothers, who worried about, and, and justifiably so, worried about market saturation and wanted to release Prince product more sporadically. Uh, We'll discuss his name change to an unpronounceable love symbol or just the artist formerly known as Prince and the reasons why he did it. Hint, it wasn't just because he was an eccentric weird guy. (laughs) Plus, we'll also do a marathon, or I will at least, (laughs) do a marathon sprint overview of Prince's discography in the 1990s, a whopping 12 albums in 10 years. Oh, boy. Yeah, cue so, the long the Lone Ranger music. Hey, we're gonna need it, but yeah, uh, absolutely. Or 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 Benny Hill. Uh, <laughs> I, I will say this: uh, that's a pretty good setup. Uh, <laughs> as our resident Michaelologist, uh, I will say that she certainly had the most historically memorable decade of the two uh, in the uh, 1990s. But since I'm here as Michael's apologist, I'm willing to make an argument that his music was at least on par if not better than Prince's uh, and his art, his artistry with the videos and all of that. It was a very strong uh, musical decade for Michael. However, nobody cares and nobody <laughs> remembers because of all of the other stuff, which we will get to in detail here shortly. At the beginning of our curmudgeon rock report, we say that this is your podcast. At this point, we suspect, you know who you are or at least that you think you know who you are. Here's a test. How many of these 10 names do you recognize? Glenn Johns, Wendy O. Williams, Arthur Alexander, Marley Marl, The Monks, 
Richard Hell, Beth Gibbons, Maury Starr, James Jamerson, Brian Wilson. Okay, so that last one was a freebie. But if you scored low, we'll take you higher. If you scored high, we'll take you even higher than that. Catch the next episode of the Curmudgeon Rock Report on November 23rd. All right, Chris, tell us about Wacko Jacko in the 90s when he really became Wacko Jacko. <laughs> yeah, sadly enough, uh, you know, I would like to tell you to knock it off, but that really <laughs> does kind of encapsulate things. Uh, coming into the 90s, uh, the world was still Michael's oyster. He had done that brilliant streak of, of uh, albums there. Uh, at, at least in the formal eighties, we had uh, thriller and bad, uh, you know, Michael was a hero of mine. Uh, when you uh, grew up as, a, uh, in an inner city school environment in the eighties, uh, Michael Jackson was sort of a, uh, an object of worship. And I certainly was like that. So this is, this is hard for me, uh, because he comes into the nineties again, the world is his oyster. He's in full control. Uh, you know, he's got more money than God and he can call the shots, uh, but maybe that was part of the problem. And so here's here's my take on Michael uh, from here. Uh, musically and artistically and touring business-wise, uh, Michael Jackson's 90s were actually pretty great. Uh, but his personal demise uh, nullified nearly all of it. Uh, it's heartbreaking, really. And I got to admit, it actually makes me really angry. I mean, go back and watch uh, Michael's videos from the albums Dangerous and History. Uh, all of them are either great or fun or hypnotically strange or gloriously romantic or all of those things all at once. And really listen, really listen to all of those uh, modern day sort of uh, R&B hip hop hybrid tracks produced by Teddy Riley and Jimmy Jam and Terry Lewis and Dallas Austin and others. Uh, a lot of it is fantastic especially songs like In the Closet, Jam, and She Drives Me Wild. Uh, wow. But consider, when this guy, and I will count all of this down, number one, he gives himself the delusional nickname, the King of Pop. Number two, he turns himself into a white guy with no nose, <laughs> introducing this alarming physical morph in the video for a song called Black or White. That was either painfully self-unaware or a fit of genius. Number three, he spent all his money on nonsensical toys and lavish gifts. Number four, he used Oprah early in 1993 to tell everyone about the actual real troubling abuse at the hand of his father and about vitiligo, the skin condition that uh, started his uh, skin lightening, uh, which obviously he enhanced. Uh to me, that was a naked attempt to garner sympathy and to sell a few more records. Uh, five, commissioning a, an actual 10-foot statue of himself. Number six, getting caught as a pedophile. Whining about it uh, in the media, about the media and the cops publicly, but then paying off a kid's family anyway to the tune of 20 plus million dollars. Number seven subsequently comparing himself to a persecuted and prosecuted Holocaust survivor in a song called They Don't Really Care About Us. Number eight, marrying Elvis Presley's beautiful daughter as a publicity stunt. Nine, going to rehab for pill abuse, having the nerve to disclose it in your self-absorbing pedophile defense video, 
and blaming the accident from his Pepsi video there, the famous accident that burned his scalp for that addiction. And then just a few years later, write a love song to the drug morphine. <laughs> Number 10, he married his dermatologist's uh, nurse so he could inseminate her for pay. And here's a bonus number 11 that just became relevant in the last month. Collaborating with a guy who's just as monstrous as he was on the young person sexual tip. So his, <laughs> his biggest uh, hit of the decade turns out to be a huge blight. We'll talk about that in a little bit. So, uh, so if you do all that, it uh, tends to taint any goodwill that, that you've built up. Uh, any uh, initial reactions to uh, that, uh, that, that greatest misses list uh, that I just went over. Oh yeah. You, you forgot to mention the greatest song and video ever made heal the world. Oh, well, yes. We'll, we'll, we'll get into that in a second. I mean, I, I, I guess you can complain about that one too, as it, as it demerit, but, uh, but that's the musical stuff. And so I really wanted to kind of just get, get the, um, the demise and the, the a lot most of the messed up disturbing stuff out of the way first because we are a musical podcast and here I am I'm, I'm uh, I have the job of defending Michael and his music uh, between 90 and uh, 99 so uh, let's uh, get to that uh, so late in 1991 uh, he had been working on it for several years and notably he had been working on it without Quincy Jones who had produced uh, the first the, the previous three unbelievably great uh, and interesting and exotic records uh, before this one. Uh, he drops the, the album Dangerous in November of 1991. Of course, being a Michael Jackson record, it debuts to lots of fanfare, uh, sells lots of records, uh, debuts at number one, uh, spurred four uh, top ten hits. Uh, but this is where it really started in terms of his demise. So he debuts the video for black or white uh, on Fox national television on like a Thursday night. I remember watching it live. Yeah. Uh, the video is, is really well done. Actually, there's this incredible uh, sequence at the end where there are all these people, they, they sing the lyric to the song, they turn their side of the head. And then when they turn back to the camera, they're a different person. Uh, it was pretty cool technology. Uh, but two things everybody remembered the next day. One, Wow, Michael looked a whole lot different at this point. They <laughs> yeah. hadn't seen him for a while. So yeah. now his his skin, he yeah, he looked a little bit lighter uh, around the time of bad. Maybe it was makeup. At this point, now he's way lighter. Way lighter. Yeah. And most of his nose is gone. So he's got <laughs> tiny nose, different looking eyes, uh, obviously altered eyebrows, uh, cleft chin, all, all of this stuff. And so people want to talk about just how, like, uh, like disturb my, and, and a lot of people, you know, remember that this is America. So you've got white folk out there whose minds were probably blown uh, by this and insulted by it. So, but the point here is, is that this is what people remember from this period. But dangerous, about two thirds of it is really damn good. Yeah. D D dangerous is not a bad album. I mean, I, I don't think it's anywhere near as good as uh the, the the two prince albums of this period nowhere near as good as the prince album of the following year but uh there is some good stuff there i mean i i, I have nothing bad to say about dangers except that it's you know 
it's a good album. It's not great, but there, but there is some great stuff on it, especially the upbeat tracks. Like a lot of with Michael Jackson, his ballads are always the worst songs. Yeah. <laughs> you know? Yeah. No, yeah, no, exactly. Um, uh, yeah. Well, here's the thing. So like you said, there's a lot of great stuff on this and uh, to, to expand on it a little bit, uh, a lot of this album, it's, it's kind of a tag team production. Uh, you know, Jackson's obviously Jackson wrote most of the songs, uh, either wrote them or co-wrote them. Uh, and he, the B guy, quote unquote, from uh, the Quincy Jones production of Bad, Bill Bottrell, uh does some of the tracks, including Black or White. But the dominant musical figure on this album is Teddy Riley. Uh, mm. A lot of you will probably remember Teddy Riley. He's the innovator, maybe not the inventor, but he's the uh, most notable innovator of what was known as New Jack Swing. Yeah. Uh, for those of you who need the little education, uh, what was New Jack Swing? Now, New Jack Swing was a uh, kind of ingenious hybrid of R&B, uh, hip-hop, and other black dance music uh, influences uh, into uh, what amounted to you take the hip-hop energy and swagger and sort of the, the drum machine kind of like hit, you know, the stuff that really rocks, but you give it a swing uh, that can incorporate R&B. And so, you, like I said, you have those hard-hitting drums, but you have this groove that is a little bit funky, but just has a, has a sway. And so there's like a rhythm. There's a, there's a new Jack rhythm, you know? And it, so you remember all the stuff from like Keith Sweat and Bobby Brown and all those folks. There's a, yeah. there's a distinctive rhythm to it. Yeah. Um, and it's the kind of thing that you can either sing to it or you can rap to it, and it will actually sound good in both instances. Uh, and so that that really broke ground. I mean, without uh, without New Jack Swing, you don't get like you know, like you can make the argument that that leads a path uh, straight to the Beyonces and uh, you know some of the superstars of, of turn of the century uh, R and B. Yeah, uh, for sure. So anyway, so Teddy Riley is recruited to uh, come in and uh, co-write and co-produce a lot of these songs. And some of this stuff is just incredible. I mean, some of Michael's best singles ever. Uh, Remember the Time, uh, In the Closet. Uh, obviously, you know, you can... So, so, so many jokes. So many jokes. I know. Uh, in, in, incredible video for In the Closet, by the way, uh, directed by Herb Ritz. Uh, Na Naomi Campbell, uh, a British model, uh, basically like dancing sexily for the camera. Uh, and actually, you know, Michael at that point, if you obscured his face enough, you could still say that he was a, a rather dapper dude. Um, you know, <laughs> like I said, so, so long as you've hit his face from the camera. Um, a, a lot of obscurity would be required. <laughs> yes, yes, yeah, a lot, yeah. Oh, not, not so, not as much as in uh, like 2000, by 2001, I mean, even the directors told Rolling Stone and the obituary that, yeah, uh, we just, we did everything we could to just hide his whole face. <laughs> uh, you know, but, but anyway, uh, it, so Teddy Riley and Michael Jackson come together. This is the mainstreaming of, of, of the new Jack. And I think the, the purest distillation of it and like the greatest, uh, marriage of it and the magic of it is on the lead song on the album jam, which, you know, that's a great song. That's one of my favorite songs on the album. It's one of the best ones there, man. Yeah, yeah no, no, ab absolutely. Uh, it, uh, that's heavy D doing uh, a rap. So Heavy D and Michael Jackson uh, in the uh, in the same environment. Uh, who knew? <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So. I mean, it's a it's an interesting album because when I noticed that uh, a big difference between this one and bad, this one's got a little bit more funk to it. 
Like with Bad, he kind of pushed the funk aside and made it more of a pop rock type of record. This one, he's brought the dance music back for Dangerous. Yeah, no, no, absolutely. Yeah, yeah, and that's that. That's a, a key thing. You could make the argument that at least as a solo artist, and I don't mean this derisively. I mean this just in terms of uh, the music and sort of you know the idioms of that you get in pop. It, it's arguably his blackest album uh, in some respects. It's like maybe, he's, yeah, yeah. yeah I, guess. I mean, well, at least the two thirds of it. Uh, yeah. You know, it's it's got that swagger. It's got that. It's got that energy. It's got that, uh, you know, clearly, you know, this is a, an R&B uh, innovation that's that's designed for a black audience. This is not, uh, you know, like stuff like, the, you know, the again, this is the Teddy Riley stuff, like the title track and some of the other stuff. I mean, this is not real, not really mainstream uh, R&B or like mainstream pop. But because it's Michael and because Michael could just pull it off so well and like Michael could do anything, yeah, uh, it, it becomes uh, it becomes a hit. Now let's talk about that other third before we move on to the <laughs> other stuff. Uh, I guess one of the things you could say about Riley uh, and, and, and his uh, camp is that maybe they saved Michael from himself because Michael at this point was fashioning himself not only as the king of, of pop, but as kind of the savior of all of the oppressed and hungry and poor and, and little <laughs> children and all of the, uh, the broken people yeah. of the world. And so yeah. that's where you come up with crap. And I, <laughs> I will say it, that is a technical term crap, like heal, heal the world. And will you be there? And, uh, gone, gone too soon, <laughs> gone, gone too soon, which we, uh, which couldn't be gone soon enough to be honest <laughs> with you. Uh, I mean, look, good intent. I mean, I, he, you know, he was close with Ryan White. Uh, a lot of our listeners our age or older will remember Ryan White as a little boy that uh, was a hemophiliac who caught AIDS uh, in a transfusion in a small town somewhere in the Midwest. And that was kind of like reefer madness. Like everybody figured that that was the queer disease back yeah. then. And so this, yeah. this kid who was like 10, he got ostracized, but he was a brave little dude. And, you know, and like Michael and Liz Taylor and all these people, they came in and he became friends with them and they came and championed him. Well, you know, uh, White died uh, in his teens of AIDS. And so this is the tribute song. Uh, I really wish the story wasn't as, as poignant as it is because <laughs> it makes it harder to shit on the song. <laughs> you, you, you know what I mean? It just, uh, it's, it's, it's painful. So like if Michael had been left his own devices for what it's worth, I think Michael produced almost all of these uh, garbage songs by himself. And so if he had been left to his own devices, it would have just been uh, the corny, insufferable, uh, you know, all, all of us broken people. And, you know, let's uh, <laughs> let's save the world together. And it's like, oh, no, just just shut up and make like great music, dude. And and, and, just- and, and I will save all the children in the world by inviting them to my Neverland ranch. I'll yes. Save all those kids. Uh, yes. And, and and like I said, we're, we're getting there, folks. And we'll, we'll talk a little bit about that. Uh and so uh, a couple of things to note. Uh, this album is uh, certified eight times platinum uh, by the RAIAA um, uh, at this point uh, here, 30 years later. Uh, Michael toured on the backs of this record, World Tour. It was kind of like bad. He had the never-ending World Tour for most of uh, two years. Uh, grossed uh, a gazillion dollars, uh, somewhere between $150 million and a gazillion uh, so, uh, I'm telling you, the guy never lost his momentum, uh, and, uh, worship everywhere in the world, except here. 
Yeah. Uh, this was this was the one country that ostracized him truly. I mean, he like even at the end of his life, he could go to Dubai and get like a hundred thousand screaming fans, uh, which <laughs> is something that actually happened. Yeah. Um, so now, oh, and and one other thing to mention very quickly: uh, trivia for you, Arturo. Uh, yeah. So coming into nineteen ninety two. Uh, Dangerous was the number one album in the uh, country on the Billboard 200 charts. What album knocked Michael off the top? Let me guess. Uh, Michael Bolton. N- no, it wasn't Michael Bolton. We didn't go from one extreme Michael to the other. Uh, as, as, as it turns out, uh, we were juniors in high school. A lot of you were coming of age as well. This is when Nirvana's Nevermind yeah. officially hit uh, number one on the billboard uh, 200 and this was this was a very stark changing of the popular music guard when michael jackson who had been the biggest star in the world for a decade is getting bumped off by uh, uh, grunge a, scru- by a, a scruffy little scruffy little rock band from aberdeen <laughs> <laughs> yeah, Aberdeen, Washington, and it was the beginning of the grunge revolution. Uh, if you look at the Curmudgeon Rock catalog, we have an episode back there called Death by Nirvana. Uh, <laughs> this wasn't exactly Death by Nirvana, but this was maybe Illness by Nirvana. Uh, and this is it was a, it was a blow by Nirvana. <laughs> yeah, yeah, for sure, for sure. This was the uh, this was the beginning uh, of. I guess you could say this is at least commercially. This was maybe uh, Michael now off the peak. Uh, okay, so then, uh, so he does Dangerous, again, uh, really, you know, influential record because of its uh, embrace of New Jack Swing. So we go into 1993, and again, you know, because of all the, the obsession with, with grunge and that kind of music, uh, Michael is now on page two or three as opposed to page one. He's still selling some records. So his folks and the NFL and a whole bunch of other folks say, wouldn't it be cool if we got Michael Jackson to play the Super Bowl halftime show? Mm-hmm. And I guess a whole lot of people said, Oh, great idea. So yes, indeed. It's we're going on the 20th year of this shit or 30th year of this shit yeah. where you get some superstar or a collective of superstars to play the halftime show at the Super Bowl. Uh, most of this stuff is God awful and instantly forgettable. Uh, they'll always have like the screaming, you know, obviously paid extra uh, fans on the field. Yeah. Uh, a lot of it is lip synced. It's always medleys uh, of hits. Um, there's only been two of these that I've actually ever liked. Uh, U2's after uh, 9-11 in 2002, which was really, really moving. And then, ironically enough, your guys, uh, uh, Prince. Uh, performance Prince in uh, 2007 uh, at uh, Super Bowl 41. 41, yeah. Yes. And uh, in the pouring rain with two beautiful twins in like at least eight inch heels <laughs> going out there playing a medley and not just his hits, but at the time he was getting ready to do a Vegas review and doing all this like Foo Fighters covers and Chuck Berry and all this other stuff. But it was an amazing performance. But anyway, Michael uh, launched this this era with this halftime performance. And uh, it's yeah, at this point, his face had even deteriorated even more. Um, and it's kind of, at first it's ridiculous. He comes out there and he's standing out there in like the, uh, the big aviator shades, but he's wearing what I am calling a gay bandolero outfit. You know, (laughs) you know, think of like the Mexican bad guys, uh, in like Robert Rodriguez movies and the kind of stuff they would wear and now glitter it up, you know, like gold, like gold, gold LeMay glitter in a bandolero outfit. That's basically what Michael's wearing. So, uh, he's, he's moving on from the, uh, the Motley Crue inspired, not kidding. Motley Crue inspired, uh, shit he was wearing 
in the late 80s. Uh, and he's moving on to even weirder stuff. And so the, at the beginning of Spormers, he just kind of stands there for two minutes. But then I got to admit, the this is actually a really entertaining 15-minute uh, set. Uh, clearly lip-synced, badly lip-synced, but so what? Really energetic, uh, really enthusiastic. I mean, everything is sharp. You know, he, he recreates the Billie Jean thing for about 45 seconds. And it was, uh, like I said, uh, you know, this is actually an artistic accomplishment. And uh, so we have to mark this as Michael uh, starting this. He, he launches uh, uh, this this era uh, of this. And, and it, like, essentially, so, okay, so let's preface this, folks, because we're about to switch to this. Um, we're making a lot of jokes. Uh, this, this really is not funny and it's disturbing and it's for me, again, it's heartbreaking because again, it's like, uh, we all have our musical heroes and we all have our musical idols, but what are, what's really going on behind that brain? What's really going on behind the scenes? What don't we know? And, uh, like, you know, it's the old question. If you really got a chance to know and meet your heroes and spend time with your heroes, by the end of that streak, would they really still be your heroes? <laughs> yeah, good yeah. question. Yeah, yeah I mean, and, and so, you know, I, again, and that's sort of, I mean, anybody who's seen the movie Almost Famous knows that that's one of the themes of, of that movie, but uh, free association there. So late in 1993, uh, a story hits, uh, becomes a feature in Vanity Fair a couple months later, but there's this kid that Michael uh, had befriended. Um, I guess his parents were, uh, high powered or whatever. Uh, but this kid would become a frequent guest at the Neverland ranch. Uh, and by, by now, you know, even before this, the word had gotten out that Michael was inviting kids to sleep in his bed, which everybody mm. was speculating was bad stuff. And of course it comes out that the uh, Santa Barbara County Sheriff's office is investigating Michael for said bad stuff, uh, involving this kid who was now, uh, 13. And uh, this really, you know, blew up into headlines and it was pretty sensational, but it was uh, really engrossing and again, disturbing. And so Michael, uh, who you got to remember, Michael is one of these guys who always railed on the media, but nobody used the media better than him. Yeah. Uh, You know, (laughs) like in the 80s, I mean, there's all been stories out there that he planted some of the, you know, the oxygen chamber shit and, you know, hanging out with the, the chimp and all this other stuff. And. I know that there was the machine like he went uh, to the Oscars one year with Brooke Shields as kind of a uh, as a stunt. And so, you know, like anytime Michael uh, was questioned with his sanity, he would get some hot famous check to uh, hang on his arm. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> but anyway, so get in trouble here. Uh, parents and this kid are, are claiming that uh, Michael did all of this uh, sexually uh, abusive stuff to this kid over a period of, uh, of uh, a long time. And so the, the, the sheriffs are now investigating and, you know, Michael is a, is a suspect. Well, wanting to get ahead of the story, on December 22nd, 1993, uh, he makes a surprisingly crudely recorded video uh, that a, um, a caption at the bottom of the screen in all caps tells us is live from Neverland Valley. And, you know, Michael, looking very distressed, uh, addresses it. Uh, the camera telling everybody that he had just been to rehab because of the reconstruction of his scalp from the Pepsi ad and, you know, had gotten hooked on painkillers. And then he proceeds to, uh, in a way proclaim his innocence, but basically uh, I'll just read this from the, uh, the, uh, from the video, this excerpt. 
uh, which, you know, and again, like may, maybe Michael's making some good points here is compelling, but there's always a catch with these guys. So let me read this first. So at, at the middle of this, Michael says, at every opportunity, the media has dissected and manipulated these allegations to reach their own conclusion. I ask all of you to wait to hear the truth before you label or condemn me. Don't treat me like a criminal because I am innocent. I have been forced to submit to a dehumanizing and humiliating examination by the Santa Barbara County Sheriff's Department and the Los Angeles uh, Police Department earlier this week. They served a search warrant on me, which allowed them to view and photograph my body, including my penis, my buttocks, my lower torso, thighs, and any other areas that they wanted. They were supposedly looking for any discoloration, spotting, or other evidence of a skin color disorder called vitiligo, which I have previously spoken about. The warrant also directed me to cooperate in any examination of my body by their physician to determine the condition of my skin, including whether I have vitiligo or any other skin disorder. The warrant, the warrant further stated that I had no right to refuse the examination or photographs, and if I failed to cooperate with them, they would introduce that refusal at any trial as an indication of my guilt. It was the most humiliating ordeal of my life, one that no person should ever have to suffer. And even after experiencing the indignity and wanted to, they, you know, of this search, the parties involved were still not satisfied and wanted to take even more pictures. It was a nightmare, a horrifying nightmare. But if this is what I have to endure to prove my innocence, my complete innocence, so be it. Now, uh, folks, this, this video is on, is on YouTube, uh, but reading it really kind of gives you the effect of, of, of how stark Michael was here uh, and convincing. Yeah, uh, he, he, he was like almost choking up in tears at some point. Pretty good performance. <laughs> yeah, I mean, look, I mean, maybe, look, maybe he had righteous beefs with the cops and the media because, yeah, they're, they're, they really did kind of harass him. But uh, this is kind of the, um, the abuser's M.O., yeah. which is uh, it's always everybody else's fault. Uh, you know, it's, 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 it's a narcissist uh, uh, move and it's an abuser and it's a sort of guilt uh, projection onto everyone else. And, you know, Michael really, you know, it said he had the, the two greatest gifts that almost all of the famous sexual scandals that we've had uh, yeah. in the last couple of decades, whether it's the Catholic Church or, it, you know, the Me Too movement out there in Hollywood and all of that. And now, you know, Michael and, and others in the music business, too. So there's two commonalities uh, for these folks. One, they're backed by large institutions, cultural and, and you know, uh, sure. and political institutions that give them plenty of cover and have their back because they know that there's a shitload of money on the line. And we're talking billions of dollars, at least in the music industry. So that's one. Yeah. Two, these people personally have a ton of money. And, yeah. you know, they can buy the best lawyers to get off, you know, see O.J. Simpson uh, or, you know, they have the money to pay people to go away, which in this instance is what Michael did. Uh, 2004 report uh, by Court TV. They got their hands on the confidentiality agreement uh, between this uh, young man's uh, parents and Michael. Michael paid them more than twenty five million dollars, <laughs> you know, and so. 
And look, you can complain about these parents. I mean, to say, look, sure. Yeah. Where, where, do you think were, were they pimping their kids? You know, did yeah. they kind of have this expectation that maybe Michael might do something that they can then get get them for? Uh, yeah. Which, yeah. Wouldn't shock me. No, no, no one is free of blame here. I'm, I'm, I'm willing to bet my money that the parents knew that Michael was kind of a a pedophile, you know, for having all these kids over in his bedroom and that quote unquote slumber parties. And the parents knew that and still were like, you know, sending out their kids there in exchange for gifts from Michael and yeah. knowing that he's going to give them money. I mean, no, yeah, Michael's to blame for being the predatory pedophile, but these parents are to blame as well because they fucking knew. They knew. Yeah. I mean, they had to know. Yeah. And it, it's, and it's not just the parents as we learned a, a dozen late, years later and like, like 2004, 2005, whenever Michael uh, got, finally got arrested uh, and was put on trial, we learned yeah. that uh, money, somebody with that much money and when money is that involved, there's no such thing as a credible witness because yeah. either the National Enquirer is paying them uh, to source this thing or Michael is paying them or somebody's paying somebody to do something or to look the other way or to give information or all of this. Everybody's motivated by money. Nobody has any credibility. Therefore, there isn't a jury in the world that's doing its job that can convict somebody in Michael's position in that trial. Yeah. Uh, it, yeah. was really, it was really eye-opening the way that this culture kind of works for these big-time celebrities and, and power brokers, which is why I guess in the last couple of years for guys like Harvey Weinstein and, hey, R. Kelly – to finally, yeah. to finally uh, have to pay for decades-long things. when it, it was like the most open secrets in the world, and they finally get busted. Well, back yeah. then, people still didn't get busted, and, you know, Michael was, was perfectly indicative of that. So Yeah. Yeah, it's, it's, it, it, is, it is kind of a <laughs> – it is a fucked-up situation. But it's, it, it, it's after this and Michael's attempt to deflect – from the pedophile attention, enter Lisa Marie Presley, you know, like what the yeah. hell? <laughs> yeah. Oh, you know, I know. Yeah. It's like two, two great, uh, weird tastes that go great together. And, uh, <laughs> well, you know, and that's ironic because, you know, he marries Elvis's daughter and Elvis was the other famous, uh, you know, sort of icon whose uh, mental uh, state and, uh, personal health and everything else went to shit. Yeah. Uh, so, slowly before everybody's uh, eyes. And, you know, and so if, if anything, you know, uh, Lisa Marie Presley grew up knowing the Presley legacy. You know, Michael was Michael and had been Michael since he was 10 years old. So, of course, if these two get together, at least it's a plausible marriage. Um, <laughs> but, you know, but they were they were together uh, for a few years, but it's kind of a, a strange a strange situation. So anyway, so that's one thing again. So, you know, the the Michael playbook was was blame the institutions, you know, the media and the cops and, and all of that, uh, uh, put a good looking woman on his arm. Uh, and then he goes to rehab his image. Uh, and so in 1995, this is the next musical salvo. Uh, he comes back with this album called history. Uh, mm. and history is a very strange record in the sense that it's a two disc volume. The first disc is a greatest hits package. And so it has all the, you know, thriller, bad, dangerous, uh, you know, off the wall, all the stuff throughout his, his career is like, you know, 12, 15 songs. And so that's the first disc. And so it's kind of like, you know, uh, history begins is the first disc, I believe. And then history continues, uh, brand new stuff. A lot of it, uh, co-produced with Jimmy Jam and Terry Lewis of, uh, 
of uh, Morris Day and the Time fame and uh, Janet Jackson fame. Uh, there's other, uh, there's one song produced by Dallas Austin, who was hot at the time and, uh, other assorted, uh, stuff. It's a, it's, it's a good record. It's, it's one of those things. It, it's, it's way lost because people were still, they were all fascinated by the child stuff. Uh, Lisa Marie. And not only that, but you know, the guy built a 10 foot statue of himself. That's on the, that's on the cover. Uh, and so he's, <laughs> You know, basically, uh, you know, it's, you know, when in doubt, you know, make yourself into the idol. Like the guy like <laughs> literally built monuments to himself. He's not building monuments to God. He's not building monuments to kid. He's building a monument to himself. Uh, <laughs> but the, the record itself, pretty good. Uh, you know, Michael's probably more involved in the production and the writing than he ever has uh, uh, before. Uh, he's got a couple of great ballads on here. Stranger in Moscow is one of uh, one of his best. Uh, he he has by far his best of those unsufferable message songs, Earth Song. Yeah, uh, I mean Earth Song just has a it just has kind of a power to it. It's uh, it's gentle, but it but it has kind of a drive to it. It, it also has one of his best videos. Uh, I remember watching that with a couple of guys in my fraternity. We were all sober, and <laughs> one of the guys actually started crying. It's it's a really powerful video about you know basically about the destruction of of the Earth. Uh, but there's also some bangers on there. Uh, and when, you know, Michael is, is struggling or he needs a lift into cultural relevancy, you, you call out the troops. And so he has a quote unquote duet, uh, called scream with, uh, with Janet Jackson, which is actually yep. a killer song, killer beat, uh, by Jam and Lewis, uh, Shaquille O'Neal, who was, <laughs> who was fancying himself as a rapper has a guest rhyme, uh, somewhere in here. And, uh, notorious B.I.G. Uh, wow. Yeah, there's a guest uh, uh, lyric on this time around, uh, which is the Dallas Austin one, which has a which has a killer beat and really brings out the growl in Michael's voice. You know, Michael had two extremes in his voice. He had the pretty falsetto, but then he had that kind of guttural growl. And yeah. so this uh, this brings out the growl. But then there's Biggie, and then of course Biggie, and and it you know, refers to uh, Michael as my N word. Uh, you know, in there. And so it's like, you know, you know, uh, you know, Biggie, uh, this is like the ultimate, uh, validation of Michael's blackness is when yeah. you have notorious B.I.G. who had just broken out to become a superstar, um, at that point in 1995, endorsing Michael as my N, uh, yeah. doesn't get any more street than that, I suppose. Uh, I think the, the most standout thing for me and probably the most uh, enduring musical uh, nugget on the record is a cover of Charlie Chaplin's Smile. Uh, which, yeah, which is re it's actually beautiful, uh, produced by David Foster. Uh, Michael was a hell of a singer. He was, a, you know, I said he's, he's one of the best singers in the history of pop music. Uh, it's his voice as much as anything that made him famous. You know, all that, you know, cooing and ooing and eyeing and, you know, all the sort of clipped uh, uh, uh interpretations of lyrics and, and, and melodies and all of those things, put that together. And it's just a straightforward, but just beautiful rendition of that song, which makes up for the cardinal sin of doing a God awful cover of come together by the Beatles. So uh, history, history, as you would imagine, because it's a double album, which is deceiving in the RIAA system uh, was like eight times platinum or something like that as well. But you got to remember uh, one double album counts as two units. So yeah. uh, take it with a grain of salt. Um, 
And so, 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 so it really sold 4 million units. Yeah, yeah, basically. And uh, the other thing worth mentioning about this album and what it's most famous for is his biggest hit of the 90s and one of the best songs in Michael Jackson's entire catalog, You Are Not Alone. Oh, God. <laughs> Inc- incredible song. I mean, look, there's such a thing as an R. Kelly song, uh, like I Believe I Can Fly. There's, there's certain like just like melodies on loan from heaven uh, that R. Kelly could capture. And so he does this song and he gets Michael Jackson to sing it. And it is one of the more perfect pop hits. I mean, it basically like I get, I get this image of them taking, like, let's imagine they still did reel to reel back then you take the reel and the, uh, the masking tape uh, label on it just says hit, <laughs> you know, <laughs> they hadn't named it yet. It just says hit. Uh, yeah. I mean, come on. This is like uh, this is like grade A quality premium hit. Uh, <laughs> but nobody wants to admit that anymore because, look, a uh, n- never convicted but very likely pedophile is singing yeah. it. And a guy who everybody knew he was doing it because he got caught pissing on a 15 year old girl on a sex tape. Uh, <laughs> he finally, at least in New York, it was like Rico. It was like, you know, conspiracy, like, you know, basically like. Uh, child sex trafficking because he because <laughs> because yeah, he was having all these 15 and 16 year old girls like basically flown in so he could he could do all this crazy shit to them and uh, yeah. he finally and again uh it, it was a documentary effort that really did him in uh yeah all these women they talked to this they, they and it finally got yeah, uh, the ball rolling. He's convicted in New York, Chicago. I think uh, trial and charges are pending, and somewhere else. It's you know he's he he won't see uh, the light of day for a long time. And so yeah, yeah. so the two two of the biggest darkest um, uh, twisted geniuses of all time on one song. And yeah. so and, and the song is called "You Are Not Alone." <laughs> yeah, and all, 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 all of a sudden it takes on a sinister tone. Uh, I, I actually, that's pretty good. I actually, had, I actually hadn't thought of that one, but yeah. Uh, so, so folks, sometimes Arturo writes my jokes for me. Uh, so, so that's that's really Michael uh, in the '90s uh, uh, musically. Like, you know, basically it's it's a, a, it's a slow death. Uh, in terms of his relevance, in terms of the comfort that people have with him, uh, the returns are diminishing. Um, one other note is that in 1997, he did release an album of remixes and outtakes called Blood on the Dance Floor, which the remixes are all songs from Scream. Uh, eh, you know, it, 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 that's shitty. But it's worth it to find it on Spotify or wherever you get your music from these days to find uh, blood on the dance floor because the five unreleased tracks are all awesome. Uh, legitimately awesome songs. Uh, the title track, the song morphine, gee, guess what, guess what that one's about. This is the love letter to his drug of choice. Uh, and it's, as far as I can tell from the credits, it's four outtakes from dangerous cause Teddy Riley uh, produced three of them. And then a jam and Lewis produced unreleased one. But they, they're all bangers, um, and it basically is like Michael's last musical gift uh, to the world before he falls into being uh, the uh, the bankrupt guy on the run that everybody's trying to uh, uh, demonize and uh, and put in prison for the rest of his life. And uh, so, sad story. 
On this episode, we discussed Prince and Michael Jackson in the 1990s as the fourth installment of our Prince vs. Michael series. For the next episode, we'll stay in that decade and start a new series entitled Under Analysis, where we choose an artist slash band and critically examine their discography and discuss their greatness, influence, and importance. Our first entry in this series is arguably the greatest American band of the 1990s, Pearl Jam. Earlier this year, Ronan Givoni published his book called Not For You, Pearl Jam and the Present Tense, which provided an excellent overview of the band's music and cultural relevance. It'll also serve as a launching pad for your two favorite curmudgeons as we'll dive deep into grungy waters and convince all the Pearl Jam haters and naysayers why this band mattered then and why they still matter now. Spin the black circle indeed. Email us at curmudgeonrock at gmail.com or hit us on Twitter at at curmudgeonpod. That was the tour through Michael Jackson's musical and, let's face it, uh, 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 disturbing uh, stuff journey through the 1990s. Arturo, tell us about Prince in the 1990s. Uh, he's coming off a of Batman high now, isn't he? He's, and he's coming off the, the supposed high of Graffiti Bridge. <laughs> One yeah. of the worst movies ever made. <laughs> yeah, pretty much. Ingrid Chavez is hot, but that movie is terrible. Yeah, I mean, I mean, this is the thing about Michael Jackson and Prince. They had so many parallels. They're both, they're two African-American guys from the Midwest. Both had abusive fathers. Um, um, both uh, had, like, they were both huge at the same time in the 1980s. They both had their last gasps of real commercial fortune in the early 90s. And by the end of the 90s, both of them were irrelevant, <laughs> you know? So yep. it's, a, it's just one parallel occurrence after another it's the reason why we're doing we do this series like these two guys were and are forever entwined with each other yeah, they really absolutely. are they really are um they were born the same year you know i mean yeah we, i was gonna yeah. say uh, <laughs> 1958 madonna also born in 1958 interesting year for uh, yeah, pop star births. sure sure and uh and by the end of the 90s prince had darker skin than michael jackson <laughs> yeah go figure you know but anyway the Prince story of the 1990s really starts with the huge hit that Sinead O'Connor had with Nothing Compares to You. But that's balanced because, you know, you know that, that, that's, I mean, Prince could be, you know, he made millions in royalties from that. He could, you know, he, he could run around a, a racetrack and, in a, in a, in, 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 you know, just uh, uh, being proud of that shit. But he also yep. had the, ter the terrible graffiti bridge movie. So it kind of offset that a bit. So how does Prince bounce back? Well, we'll start this story actually in early 1991 when Prince debuted his new band, the New Power Generation, at the Rock in Rio Festival. Now, differing from his old band, The Revolution, the NPG had more of a hard-edged funk sound, complete with a horn section, which he never had before, because back then he was really all about the synthesizers. And, uh, and the, the new band, the NPG, they were more suitable for the dance floor, which is a direction Prince was generally moving toward anyway, right? So as hip-hop started to become a prominent pop music genre in the early 1990s, and contrary to Prince's reputation for being rather frosty toward hip-hop, 
the NPG had no problem incorporating hip hop beats and textures into the first album they did with their maestro, you know, and that album is Diamonds and Pearls, which great record. Great record, yeah. Well, he had back-to-back great ones. This one and the one after that, but I'll get oh, to yeah. that later. Uh, Diamonds and Pearls, which came out in fall 1991. Um, while Nirvana, Pearl Jam, and the grunge movement were starting to set rock radio on fire, uh, Prince was steadily holding court as the king of American R&B, if not the king of pop, because that's Michael Jackson, <laughs> with the huge hits off Diamonds and Pearls. Um, get Off was a dance floor monster, with its hip-hop New Jack rhythm, uh, and it peaked at number six in the R&B chart. He had an even bigger hit, a bigger hit, sorry, with the very, very sexualized song Cream. I wonder what uh, Cream he was talking about. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, yeah. The, the video is not too subtle about this either. Yeah, so. the slinky, sex-drenched groover that reached number one in the Billboard pop charts, inexplicably only his fifth overall. And, of course, they had the token ballad off the album, uh, um, uh, the, the title track, Diamonds and Pearls, which also went really high in the pop chart, went number three in the pop chart. So the, the record was a huge hit uh, for him. He started the 90s off with a bang, you know. Um, and then with this much commercial success, you would expect the album to be a classic artistically. Thing is, it's a really good album, but it, it is, it's a good album, but it really isn't, it doesn't quite, get to being great um it's actually pretty uneven as far as quality is concerned um this there's like six or seven amazing songs on it and the singles are all great but uh, it seemed that more attention was paid on developing a contemporary for the time hip-hop sound than actually yeah. crafting great songs throughout and yeah like yeah said, that is the one complete yeah i mean this is at the top of second tier prints yeah, exactly. And while the hit singles were fantastic, um, there weren't many other tracks that really matched them. Exceptions, however, were Money Don't Matter Tonight. It's kind of a mid-tempo love jam with an anti-materialist message, which is ironic considering how much money Prince spent on his wardrobe, but whatever. Yeah, and, uh, <laughs> and, and Paisley Park. And Paisley Park. And, of course, he had the really infectious R&B pop of, uh, well... Daddy Pop, the name of the song. <laughs> um, nevertheless, the train kept a rolling. Another Aerosmith reference uh, for Prince and the NPG. Uh, in 1992, they released an album that didn't have a name, but rather an odd symbol that Prince elaborated was a combination of the symbols for both male and female. Um, there is much more on this symbol later on in this story. <laughs> uh, yep. The the album went on to be referred to as Love Symbol or the Love Symbol album. Um, it peaked at number five on the Billboard album chart and sold almost three million copies worldwide, his best-selling album since Purple Rain. And while it sold very well and was critically praised, it unbelievably and inexplicably had no real hits. Yeah. How the hell was this possible? Because Love Symbol, I think, is a masterpiece. I, I, I think it's top shelf Prince. Oh yeah, um, I mean, it, it, great, great songs on it, and it's consistent. And yeah, and it's funky. It's funky as hell. Uh, there's hooks all over the place. Uh, yeah, it. You know, I think, like you said, in in N, NPG was his attempt to sort of like also get on that sort of new jack. Uh, yeah, you know, sort of R and B hip hop uh, meld uh, train. Uh, he, like you said, it was. Same thing as dangerous. It's you know like two thirds successful. This album he gets it right. And yeah, boy, this album it. gets it right. Oh, so yeah. I mean, this album is loaded with da funk, 
and yes. it is it is by a wide measure his best album of the 1990s. Um, yeah, yeah. You have you have a uh, the song "My Name Is Prince" is just this heavy hip hop, oh, yeah. hip hop and you slammer that. Yeah, sees, nasty. Yeah, yeah, sees sees Prince try his hand at some braggadocio quasi rapping, and surprisingly enough, he nails it. Here are some sample lyrics: "My name is Prince and I am funky." <laughs> My name is Prince. The one and only. I did not come to funk around. Very clever. Till I get your daughter, I won't leave this town. Jeez. Yeah. <laughs> In the beginning, God made the sea, but on the seventh day, he made me. Now yeah. that is great. <laughs> yeah, 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 yeah. No, yeah. Prince, uh, Prince on this album. I, yeah, I don't know. I there must have been like a running joke in the studio or something. But but Prince is definitely hamming it up on this album. And, oh, totally. And you can tell he's just having fun with this idea of. Yeah. Uh, I'm I'm going to write for, from the voice and the perspective of the sexiest man in the world, and uh, <laughs> he comes up with probably his greatest, uh, uh, my favorite. Uh, vocal bridge of his entire catalog and and humor me already as i as i do this sexy motherfucker shaking that ass shaking that ass shaking oh, totally, that ass yeah. sexy oh, yeah. motherfucker shaking that ass you know yeah good well, stuff se sexy mf the other uh, one of the other awesome singles from this album anyway um uh my name is prince only went to number 36 on the pop chart wow and number 23 on the r&b chart and even better than that song, I think, is the song you just mentioned, Sexy MF. Um, and yes, MF stands for exactly what you think it is. <laughs> um, very few funk and R&B jams grab you by the genitals and the ass at the same time with as much propulsive funk as Sexy Motherfucker. Um, yep. the, ho the horn section coalescing into that staccato chorus. You yeah. sexy motherfucker. You know, yeah, the chat. The jazzy bridge where Prince does what you just did. Yep. <laughs> chicken, chicken that ass, you know? Yeah. Uh, <laughs> this song had all the hallmarks of a Prince classic, which it is, but only went as high as number 66 on the pop chart, you know? Yeah. It, uh, yeah. And, and it's interesting that you mentioned this because my, my line on Prince is that, yes, he, uh, he also had his fading, uh, there's kind of a sunset period as, as like we, we said, as these guys as as cultural uh, icons and as, as kind of the, the front burner uh, uh, trendsetters, they were they were going away. But here's the thing, whereas Michael kind of you know descended into the madness and his uh, after 1991, he does uh, two and a half albums uh, with of very diminishing uh, returns. Prince. You can make the argument one. He certainly gets more prolific, which we will get to here soon. Yeah. Uh, but he goes. It's like Prince goes to college, and so what was it? It was smart boys in college, tape traders types, and yeah. so Prince. You know, Prince like fed. You know, he he loved this shit because you know he would always pop up and doing these like secret on and out shows at. 300 person clubs at two in the morning and, yeah. you know, kind of secret inside dope shows. And he had all these recordings and, uh, you know, I think he did some stuff with Macy O Parker and he was working with all these, uh, these musicians. So he kind of became like kind of the equivalent of the baseball card, like trading, uh, card nerd, uh, <laughs> guy, uh, uh, for these artists. I mean, maybe not fish or anything, yeah. but he did have kind of a collegiate problem. And this was the beginning of it because the symbol record, Great record, but you know he was starting to fall off uh, relevant. I'm surprised that seven wasn't a bigger hit. 
Uh, well, here's the thing. Seven, which is a really good song. Great and song. Think, actually, it's a song that Warner Brothers originally wanted as a lead single. Um, and it was a modest hit, peaking at, you guessed it, number seven on the R&B chart. <laughs> yeah. yeah, but not even that can make up for the fact that an album like so rich in funk, jazzy arrangements, credible hip-hop beats and textures, and really pop craftsmanship didn't produce more hits, which is ridiculous. Yeah, it, it, it's strange. And maybe that was when the uh, the portal that created the parallel universe uh, yeah, <laughs> yeah first, that's, first, first game here. Because it, 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 it really doesn't make any sense. And so <laughs> may, maybe, maybe this is why. And who knows? I mean, I don't think you can really call that album a commercial failure. Uh, uh, I, it, the album was successful, but it, it just didn't have any any hit singles. It's weird, right? You know, and and maybe it prefaced, and you know, since you're the princeologist, you you'll get into this. This may have uh, been one of the things that triggered uh, the feud that uh, basically tattooed that symbol all over yeah. the place for what, like seven years after this, or for six about, years? Yeah, about six or seven years. Yeah, I mean, um, like I said, unfortunately for Prince, 1993 would actually be the demarcation point in his recording career. And it had nothing to do with his music, like you just alluded to. Um, as prolific as he was in the 80s, Prince was even more prolific in the 1990s. And he wanted Warner Brothers to release all of his music, like all of it in a row consecutively, three, four, five albums a year, one album after another in succession. Um, and uh, in a succession that, you know, knowing Prince's uh, prolificacy would have really resulted in anywhere from three to five albums per year. And understandably, the folks at Warner Brothers worried about quality control. And more importantly, they worried about market saturation. Um, who knows? Maybe if Prince had spaced out the time between Diamonds and Pearls and the Love Symbol album, it may, Love Symbol may have actually produced more real hits. You know, who knows? In any case, Warner Brothers refusing to release 100 Prince albums a year, <laughs> that, yeah. made, that made Prince irate. Um, someone of his stature, and let's face it, his ego, uh, demanded that every note of music he recorded be heard and that, and that he was incapable of a bad album, which, of course, we know is not true. Um, and this is understandable as well, though. You know, I mean, few artists reached commercial and artistic heights that Prince reached. So I guess he is entitled to feel that way. But on the other hand, I mean, he, 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 on one hand, he deserved the respect of having his wishes capitulated to. But on the other hand, Warner Brothers had a very salient point about quality control and overloading not only music listeners, but loyal fans with so much music to purchase. So enter the love symbol, not the album, but the actual name as Prince's new professional and recording name. Yes, Prince was a weird and eccentric guy, but his reason for changing his name wasn't weird or eccentric. This was just an artist throwing a fit because the record label would not acquiesce to his wishes. It was, yes. an, act of it was an act of rebellion, pure and simple. And from this point on, Prince would be referred to in spoken form as the artist formerly known as Prince. Yes. Also, also from this point on, Prince would embark on releasing multiple albums in quick succession, not so much for artistic reasons, but as a way to methodically release himself from any contractual obligations to Warner Brothers. Yes. Um, and, and, and one of the big drivers of this was, yeah, he wanted control uh, over uh, his career and his music. But a lot of this had to do with the fact that he wanted his masters. And yes. so, yeah, he did. He didn't actually 
and you know, this is a thing, and obviously one of the the effects of internet distribution and P two P and all of this is that the artists have more control over their publishing rights, their recording rights, and uh, their authorship and, than ever uh, before. Uh, so, yeah, I, Prince wanted to release all this stuff. But the only way he could was he had to go through the folks that own the masters, you know, yeah. a, a lot of this stuff was already in the vault, you know, that, that it was already recorded. And after it's, you know, the masters get turned over to the label, it's theirs. And so, yeah. you know, like, you, like you said, this was an elaborate fit uh, blown uh, by Prince. And so tell us a little bit more about this, Arturo. But the uh, moral of the story is, hey, sometimes you got to be annoying, but annoying can work. Yeah. I mean, considering that he had a rich, expansive multi-album record deal with Warner Brothers, this meant that he would be releasing a lot of albums. <laughs> um, first, though, came a particular release of note. In early 1994, Prince, now going full-blown as the symbol or the artist formerly known as Prince, uh, released an EP of remixes called The Beautiful Experience. Uh, it produced a single that at first seemed innocuous enough, but would go on to be a major smash hit. The most beautiful girl in the world. Uh, it's a beautiful love ballad devoted to his soon-to-be wife at the time, Maite Garcia. Um, it hit number three on the U.S. pop chart and then hit number one in seven other countries. And it hit the top ten in almost everywhere. And now this is important. Why is it? Simple. This was the last commercial hit. Prince would ever have and the last time Prince would in any way be part of the contemporary pop cultural zeitgeist um, from here on out Prince would be a legacy artist in fact a living legend really with a large and devoted following who would keep purchasing Prince product but not on a level to keep him quote unquote relevant as far as the commercial hit parade is concerned uh, and to be truthful and this is coming from a massive Prince fan there are few great Prince albums from 1994 onward. Seriously, there are. <laughs> I hate to admit it, but it's true. Yeah, there, uh, there, there's good songs uh, sprinkled yeah. in there. And I actually kind of like, what is it? Rave to the Joy Fantastic. Yeah, uh, that came much later. Yeah, yeah, that's in like 99 or 2000. Yeah. But that, that's a pretty good record. But yeah, in the, see, it's interesting. He did a, um, and it took him a long time to run it. Uh, because of legal issues or whatever, but there was a story, uh, you know, interview that was done by Rolling Stone at Paisley Park, and uh, Prince in that interview uh, says something to the effect of, you know, like I could like write like the most sterling hits and swing for the pop fences and you know be be this new guy that's coming up with all this great stuff, and I can take it to radio. They're not going to care. Uh, people just want to hear those five Prince songs from the mid eighties. Uh, and the radio programs will only care about those five songs. So they might say, Oh, you know, this is cute. This is good stuff. Uh, but they ain't going to play it. I don't have any illusions. So what the hell I'm writing for me and I'm writing for my fans and that's all that yeah. matters. Yeah. And, and, and like you said, um, from 94 onward, he, he, all these albums Prince would release each of those albums, every one of them contain anywhere from three to six great songs that would make a kick-ass lengthy playlist for anyone interested in latter period prints. 
Fortunately, though, you have the Curmudgeon Rock Report to guide you on a lengthy discography journey through Prince's 1990s post-mainstream pop period to cherry-pick the best tracks of the multitude of releases. Are oh, you I'm, ready? Are you ready, yes. Chris? Uh, I'm, I'm looking very, very much forward uh, to this. I've got my track shoes on. Uh, I've, got, uh, I've got a mouth guard on in case I get hit in the teeth. Uh, Arturo, bring the noise. Let's start. Okay. 1994, he has two albums. The first album, Come, as in Come to Me. This is the last, this is the last album Prince released under his own name until 2001. It's too bad Prince didn't have enough quality material to salvage this record. (laughs) Almost every song sounds like an inferior outtake from previous new power generation recordings, except for two tracks. Um, Pheromone sees Prince singing in his underrated falsetto voice to an unrelenting dance floor killer. And Luce finds Prince dabbling with techno, of all things, and coming up with an intense jam that probably would have been a hit for any UK DJ in the 90s if it had another name attached to it, not Prince, right? Yep. Anyway, next, the Black Album from 1994. Now, this album was recorded in 1987. And it was intended to be the follow-up to Sign of the Times. It was a straight-up funk and nothing but the funk aimed at winning back his black audience who thought he had gone too pop. Uh, Just before the album was about to be released, Prince recalled all copies due to a spiritual epiphany he had. Well, quote-unquote spiritual epiphany. Claiming that lyrics on the album were, quote-unquote, too evil. In this case, one can only imagine that the evil referred to uh, the relentlessly salacious and sexual content of the lyrics. Understandable, you know, Prince was beginning his allegiance with the Jehovah's Witnesses at this time. Um, Bootleg copies of the album permeated for years afterward before Prince decided to put it out as part of his Warner Brothers feud. Um, Was it any good or worth the wait? No, not really. <laughs> uh, Cindy C is the only track that has any real dance floor sustainability. And the other good track is a ballad when two are in love. Maybe Prince was right in not releasing this in the first place. You know, <laughs> if you want real nonstop dance music from Prince, check out the Batman soundtrack. Yes. Anyway, next. Now we go to 1980, 1995, The Gold Experience. This is a little better. Um, while lavishly praised by Robert Criscow in the Village Voice and by Blender magazine, the, the, the album actually sounds at times like an uneven hodgepodge that retreats previous stylistic adventures, you know. But nevertheless, no one can resist perhaps Prince's greatest excursion into hip hop, the immortal P control, the P standing for pussy. Uh, it's a ghetto fabulous tale about a female singer who's so hot and she knows it and sets the world on fire with her sexuality. Um, in any other artist's hands, this would come off as misogynist as hell. But in Prince's hands, the female protagonist comes off as someone rather sympathetic and endearing. And plus, it has the great chorus. Ah, pussy control. Great chorus. <laughs> you know. Yeah, there, 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 there you go. That that was masterful singing. But yes. <laughs> yeah, you know, like you said, Prince, Prince loved the women, and women loved the Prince, and so yeah, yeah he yeah. he he got away with a lot of well, he got away with a lot, didn't he? 
You did. And there's some other good songs in the Gold Experience. 319 is a typical dance rock stomper, um, the kind that Prince really always excelled at. And Gold is a perfect pop song with another anti-materialist message uh, but uh, and, and doesn't have a single one of its seven minutes wasted. Great, great track. One of Prince's greatest uh, pop songs. Okay, up next, 1996. We got two albums, and they're both multiple disc sets. No okay. joke. No Chaos shit. and Chaos and Disorder, uh, 1996. This album, peaking at number 26 on the album chart, was his last album of new material for Warner Brothers and his lowest-selling album of new material since his 1978 debut. Apparently, Prince himself didn't much care for it either, admitting that he assembled it rather quickly from outtakes of from Come and Gold Experience sessions. But does it totally suck? No, not at all. The second half falters a bit, but the first half has some of the best straight-up rock music that Prince has ever made. Um, the title track uh, and and I like it like the, I like it there. Another sex song. Yeah, kick, exactly. <laughs> kick ass. And uh, Dinner with Dolores is kind of an odd choice for a single, but it's still one of his most, one of his prettiest melodic gems, right? Next, <laughs> 1996, we're still there. Emancipation. By the end of 1996, Prince was no longer on Warner Brothers, but his publishing deal was still linked with Warner Brothers until yes. 2000 until 2000 yeah so, that that was a battle uh yeah again it, it yeah. took forever but hey yeah. you know uh, the, the the little guy quote unquote the little guy won that's the yeah. ironic part yeah yeah well anyway onward he continued with the logo name now this is a triple album <laughs> released released through prince's own npg records and distributed by emi now i'm an apologist for double albums and I actually love all three discs of the Clash's Sandinista album. But man, this is one triple album whose best songs would have made a terrific single album. Yeah. Um, being a triple album, it is, naturally enough, a gigantic stylistic sprawl of every element of Prince's music. Funk, slow burn, R&B, balladry, rock, pop, blues, electronica, house music, and all things in between. Um, two of the singles released from this album are exquisite. Um, the Holy River is that rarest of things. Uh, it's a Christian song that is actually deeply moving and affecting. <laughs> yeah, uh, <laughs> there, there, there are some of those, yes. Yeah. Uh, Face Down is another rarity, a song basically bitching about a toxic relationship with a record label that is down-home funky and weird in the best way. Um, other great tracks are House Music Excursion, The Human Body, Beautiful Torch Ballad, The Love We Make, um, Electro Funk Workout as Anti-Drug Message, Joint to Joint, and uh, <laughs> In This Bed I Scream, which starts out as a patented Prince pop R&B nugget that slowly dissolves into an electric guitar and electronic beats crescendo not unlike industrial music. Uh, I got the feeling Prince was listening to Nine Inch Nails at this point. It really sounds like it. Anyway, next, 1998, Crystal Ball, another triple album. <laughs> yeah, yeah, I, yeah. I, I was going to say there, 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 there's there's prolific, and then there's motherfucking prolific. Hey, this time, Crystal Ball is a triple album of outtakes and previously bootlegged material. Yes, you heard right. 
a triple album of outtakes from previous <laughs> albums deemed unworthy of release in the first place. This is why they call it the cutting floor, folks. Yeah. Or the cutting room floor. Yeah. yeah. File this under for hardcore fans only. Yeah, um, no shit. The cupboard of original material must have been running a bit dry at this point. Uh, nevertheless, a few tasty morsels of peak prints can be found. Uh, hide the Bone uh, is an infectious, <laughs> cl- classically raunchy funk jam. <laughs> Great title. <laughs> uh, uh, da Bang is an odd yet intriguing blend of a slinky blues vamp and something approaching fast-paced electro gospel. It's a weird-ass song, but I like it. And uh, She Gave Her Angels is a vintage Prince ballad with a beautiful guitar solo. Next, now we're in 1999. We're almost done. Um, The Vault, Old Friends for Sale. More outtakes and previously recorded bootlegs. Uh, More Prince product for Warner Brothers to sell. This is what this is. Um, More stuff that Prince himself probably didn't care for. Um, even big time Prince fans complain that the versions of this compilation are watered down and overproduced compared to the original material from older bootlegs. Yeah. And finally, we get to rave unto the Joy Fantastic, also from 1999. At last, fresh new material and lots of selling points too. songs with guest spots by Chuck D, Ani DeFranco, Cheryl Crow and Eve. Unfortunately, most of the songs really suck. <laughs> yeah. This is one this is one of the laziest, least inspired, least interesting wrote uh Prince by Numbers albums ever. And the irony of it all is that this album was released as a joint venture between uh NPG Records and Clive Davis's Arista Records. Uh another layer of irony is that the few good songs are the ones where Prince doesn't collaborate with anyone. <laughs> yeah. Know, uh, Strange but true finds Prince in his a uh, mystic spoken word mode with a funky synthesizer leading this a uh, really pleasant dance track. And wherever you go, whatever you do, is a lovely mid-tempo pop ballad. One of the few areas where Prince was still excelling at uh, excelling at uh, during this period. And that's it. <laughs> yeah. That, that was- you hear the coins. Starting to drop. We're uh, we're rummaging. We are curating. We are now entering the vault, the curmudgeonly vault. This is the uh, section of uh, each episode where Arturo and I uh, really examine our considerably large, huge, enormous, swollen catalogs of music uh, for uh, an album that we think. Uh, is worth celebrating and worth bringing uh, to your attention. Uh, and so, uh, Arturo, what have you brought out of the mothballs, uh, out of the vault into the light here this week? Yeah, I'm bringing back something from the 1990s. We did Prince and Michael Jackson in the 90s. I'm doing a 90s album. This is uh, uh, from 1996. It is Neutral Milk Hotel and their debut album on Avery Island. Now, when rock music obsessive, obsessives like us hear the words Neutral Milk Hotel, they automatically, and rightfully so, think of the 1998 indie folk masterpiece in the aeroplane over the sea. Easily one of the 20 or 30 greatest American indie rock albums of all time. 
And if I if I had to do my own personal list of the 500 greatest albums of all time, it might very well be on the top half of that list. Um, the platitudes that that album has garnered, combined with the fact that band leader, singer, guitarist Jeff Mangum has refused to record any new music since that album was released, has not only enhanced that album's legacy, but in some ways it's also garnished the album with a certain mystique. You know, um, It's as if Mangum realizes that he'll never improve on that record and any attempt to follow it up with something unavoidably inferior will tarnish his discography. Now, depending on your perspective, that is either really egomaniacal or very humble. Um, the groups, or really Jeff Mangum's uh, calling card, or what has drawn the most critical attention is Mangum's approach to lyrics and lyricism. Uh, dense in language, loaded with symbolism and metaphor, and unashamedly emotional. emotional. Um, at the end of the 90s, Mangum was one of the very few songwriters who actually earned and deserved comparisons to Bob Dylan. Um, without getting into In the Airplane Over the Sea too much, more on that will follow in our upcoming mammoth series, The Fourth Golden Age of Rock. That's a plug. Um, yes, for it those is. Who for those who haven't heard In the Aeroplane Over the Sea, um, Neutral Milk Hotel on this record sounds something like mid-60s surrealist Dylan leading a marching band on acid with Tom Waits conducting them. <laughs> um, in the Aeroplane Over the Sea was NMH's second album. Lost in the accolades and worship of this album is the fact that Neutral Milk Hotel has a first album. And while not as striking or as awe-inspiring as Aeroplane, it is a masterful slice of fuzzed-out, tripped-out, psych-folk heaven that actually hits harder on first listen than the much lauded uh, follow-up record. Yeah, um, I'll, I'll agree with that. It 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 really is. It's 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 accessible and very yeah. very much so. Yeah, um, Neutral Milk Hotel may have been or continue to be an indie band, but as far as indie rock goes, uh, On Avery Island is more of a rock album than its successor, in the sense that there's much more electric guitar with a noise and distortion serving as both segues to the next track and as part of several of the song's uh, sonic tapestry. Um, if anything, the songs on, 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 on Avery Island are more conventionally melodic and they are instantly accessible, like you said, Chris, uh, with their easy-to-discern hooks. However, this is no bubblegum record. Uh, the epic song structures and unconventional arrangements that mark Aeroplane are still here, um, as is the aforementioned uh, electric guitar freakouts. Um, highlights. What are the highlights? Well, the opening track, Song Against Sex. Uh, it's an epic folk rock song that soars to the stratosphere. And the homoerotic lyrics add a subversive element that really defined much of 1990s indie rock. Um, where you'll find me now, uh, is a big sweeping lament of a dying relationship. At least I think it is judging the best I can from the surreal lyrics and the imagery <laughs> that could easily be reimagined or as a torch song ballad for solo piano. Um, the kind of beautifully crafted song that, uh, Coldplay would pimp their mothers for. Yeah, um, yeah, pretty, pretty, pretty much. It's actually a, a good call. This is like uh, Coldplay with fuzz. Yeah. Um, Naomi, to me, the most beautiful melody and song on the album. Um, yeah. Just 
simply overwhelming. Uh, in my not so humble opinion, it's one of the most gorgeous, majestic love songs of the 20th century by any artist or of any genre. Um, the chord progression crosses over to anthemic proportions. The lyrics are simultaneously bizarre and heart-meltingly romantic. And the arrangements don't overwhelm or swallow the song up as many bands or artists are willing to do with a, with a song this perfectly realized and uh, this disarmingly lovely. Um, and, you know, Pavement, Guided by Voices, and Sebado. Those three are generally seen as the holy trinity of lo-fi, i.e. cheaply recorded indie rock uh, in the 1990s. However, neither Stephen Malkmus, nor Robert Pollard, nor Lou Barlow ever made lo-fi recording transcend to celestial heights the way Neutral Milk Hotel did on, on Avery Island. And of course, on the much-heralded second album. So uh, cheers to Jeff Mangum, the Brian Wilson of lo-fi indie rock. Yeah, I mean, actually, that's a good way uh, to, to put it. And I'm glad that you brought this one out of the vault uh, this week because it is a public service because, uh, you know, Pitchfork wrote a, uh, an, a, an essay, which actually is very, very good. Imagine that. Uh, a few years ago about this, uh, how Neutral Milk Hotel has become one of the great no middle ground records. Yeah, uh, of, you know, basically of that era and certainly pretty much of all time that this idea that you either love it or you hate it. Uh, that's, yeah. uh, you know, in the aer airplane over the sea. Uh, and But it's such a shining monument to either, like you said, either, uh, you know, Jeff Magnum just being being strange and bizarre and being an asshole by walking away or saying, OK, that's it. I've done it. Yeah. Uh, looking that way. But lost in all of this is on Avery Island, which is uh, in its own way and in a different way. Uh, great uh, classic uh, indie uh, rock record, too. Uh, much more straightforward. Now, yeah, I agree with you on Naomi. That was the one that I was going to bring up. Uh, yeah. It's not the song in the airplane over the sea. Uh, yeah. The hyperbole that you gave. Uh, Naomi is what I would give in the airplane over the sea. That is the wow. most gorgeous, uh, almost incomprehensible. I mean, you know, it has an aesthetic, but there's, uh, there's some imagery in, uh, in the airplane over the sea. That's very surrealistic and, uh, almost, uh, dreamlike, uh, doesn't make any sense, but it's gorgeous. Uh, and I think that that was, uh, Magnum's, uh, MO. Uh, so, Yes, uh, folks, uh, there is more to Neutral Milk Hotel than just that monumental ode. Uh, I guess you could say it's poignant and or a little bit creepy to Anne Frank. Yeah. Uh, uh, yeah. Uh, in uh, Airplane Over the Sea, uh, Avery Island is there and uh, it's a little bit of a lost classic, I would say. Yeah, yeah. I mean, it's been lost in the in, in all like the all the the the, the talk and the, and the love that in the aeroplane over the sea gets. No one mentions on Avery Island. You know, it's a shame. Yeah, as as yeah. they should. And uh, speaking of, of, I wouldn't call it lost, but people of a certain age, i.e., our age, uh, will certainly remember what I'm bringing uh, out of the vault. So, Arturo, do you remember the movie New Jack City? Yes. In fact, I just watched it uh, not too long ago, a few weeks ago, yes. with, fresh, with fresh ears and eyes. Yeah, same, same thing. It's, it's definitely, the, the movie itself is of its era, uh, for sure. It has that sort of 
uh, turn of the decade, you know, 89, 90, 91 swagger. And uh, man, them, them, them was some fly clothes. Uh, (laughs) And uh, this is kind of what, you know, Wesley Snipes had been around for a few years before this, but uh, same year that uh, basically around, right around the same time, that movie and jungle fever is what made uh, Wesley Snipes into a superstar. And especially this, this is one of the great uh, over the top cartoonish villain, uh, performances of all time in some ways. Uh, Nino Brown uh, yeah. is, is the character that Wesley Snipes plays in this. He is the grandest crack dealer. He's the crack dealer to end all, uh, to kill all other crack dealers uh, in this movie. He is an empire maker. And uh, it it's really, it's directed by uh, Mario Van Peebles. Yes, the, the offspring of Melvin Van Peebles. And I think you and I have talked about it offline. Yeah. This is kind of a modern black exploitation film. And yeah, it really is. And in yeah. every way, the way it's the way it's filmed, from the jump cuts to the transition scenes to the camera angles to those scenes where like uh there's dialogue going on, but you don't see the people talking. Yeah. And you're seeing like the next scene after those people talk, kind of like a foreshadowing, a disassociative foreshadowing thing that a lot of black exploitation black exploitation films had. This really yeah. was like a Mario's like a Mario's homage to his father, really. Yeah, no, 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 it really was. And uh, so anyway, it's a great film, but it spawned uh, one of the uh, most interesting and fun uh, soundtracks of the era. It's no accident that the movie is called New Jack City because it's supposed to be a crime dra- drama that uh, embodies the uh, youthful spirit and rebellion and clever uh, remixing uh, attitude and style of what we talked about uh, earlier in this episode, New Jack Swing. And and so this is a, uh, a forever uh, towering uh, uh, monolith to, uh, to memorialize the glory of New Jack uh, uh, Swing is, is this soundtrack. So on this album, we get Christopher Williams, we get Guy, we get Johnny Gill, and we get Keith Sweat <laughs> and there's so- all those songs all in a row. It makes me want to go back and wear uh, day glow track suits or who, 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 who's the guy. I want to sex you up. Who was that? Oh yes. That's color me bad. Uh, oh, that if, if you don't remember anything else about new Jack city or this album, you do remember color me bads. I want to sex you up, which is on this record. Uh, <laughs> you know, which, you know, it's, it's three white guys and one black dude from Oklahoma. Uh, doing like really smooth, uh, bedroom, uh, uh, bedroom, uh, uh, R and B. It's actually a great song. I've, again, you know, in my research on that, I hadn't heard it in years. And again, you know, everybody likes to goof on the, uh, the hook and, you know, the fact that these guys were, these were the flyest white guys of all time. Uh, and so people (laughs) will goof on that, but it's a, it's a damn good R and B song. You know, it's, it's got this little, got this nice little sexy hook to it. And, and you've got all of that. And so again, it's all of these like like great high energy uh, uh, songs, uh, and it's it's bookended by uh, a couple of great slices of street hip hop. Uh, so again, it's this it's the celebration of of New Jack Swing, and it's uh, got if it's a sandwich, the bread is what makes this album and puts it into kind of a special category of soundtracks. There's the album opener by Ice T, which yep. is you know New Jack Hustler. And, uh, it's, it's classic IT, you know, in, in the voice of the, uh, 
of the gangsta of the uh, of the kingpin uh and it just really kind of you know slice of life you know sound of the streets uh the cnn of the streets kind of stuff and uh which is ironic because ice t plays one of the cops uh, in in the movie, uh, this is where Ice T first got his hand on playing a cop, uh, in, you know, in front of a camera. Yeah, obviously, yeah, he then went on to do uh, Law Law and Order Special Victims Unit. But he was good. Ice T is a good actor. He was good. Yeah, no, no he's fun yeah. in this movie. He's he, he's yeah. a lot of fun. Like him and Judd Nelson as the as, yeah. the as the two cops, and so you get that great little swing and beat. Uh, you know, high energy, uh, but also just kind of, but almost in a menacing sense. Uh, yeah. So, so you get that as a way uh, to start the record, and then the best song on the record uh, comes at the very end, and strange but true that uh, this band actually did have an artistic range outside of booty music and uh, really childish, silly schoolyard, uh, dirty, filthy lyrics to Live Crew. Oh yeah. <laughs> so, so two Live Crews in the dust. Uh, wonderfully menacing, awesome, uh, bass beat or, or, you know, kind of bass, uh, driven beat work, uh, kind of slow burning. And it's a warning song. So after all this, we've got celebrations of the culture, celebrations of sex. We've got celebrations of the lifestyle, but here we get our warning about, uh, it's not so great. And, uh, you know, these, these folks are ruining our communities and are really poisoning the streets and about how all, how fucked up all this is and uh, really compelling stuff. Yes. From the same two dudes that were the ra- the rappers on Misa horny, <laughs> uh, but in a much more compelling, uh, blunt, you know, blunt style. It's, it's still the same bluntness, but they have a lot more to say. And then, uh, Luther Campbell, who's one of the smartest, capitalists in the history of of uh, hip-hop no one knew how to work the system and work them work the distribution channels quite like luther uh no. that, that guy was a that guy was a hard-working motherfucker um and but he had this tendency on some of his songs he would have a monologue at the end of them and some of them were funny and some of them were a little goofy or, or over the top this one he makes a good point and it's one of the points of the movie that again yeah, it's a celebration of exploitation. It's it's entertaining as hell. Uh, Wesley Snipes is just wonderful in it, but it is a message movie. And yeah, and and so Luke Campbell uh, ends this with this notion of basically telling everybody what you've seen in this film. Uh, one of the famous sequences in New Jack City is where it, it goes inside the building of the crack factory where he kind of basically buys out an apartment complex and he kind of, you know, you see the crack industry form yeah. in this big yeah. factory. And so, you know, uh, Luke makes the point of, you know, like, there, you, you know, everybody sees the kind of the street level stuff on the news of all the junkies and all that. But you're not really seeing the crazy shit or the, the dark, sinister shit, you know, that, that yeah. goes on. And this is the problem. And this is why Miami and New York and everybody's getting ruined, because, you know, this really is dark and sinister and an industry. So. Good record, uh, monument to the time. So I, I love the movie. Um, like I said, I, I'm a sucker for black exploitation films. I love I, I love that genre, uh, and the soundtrack is just it's just fun as hell. Um, this is back. I mean, this is back when hip hop was still in its fun phase, right? Yeah. 
you know, not, not the hip hop of today, which is all this moody, mellow, ethereal, uh, you know, a droning synthesizer bullshit, you know, sad sack hip hop. This is back when hip hop was music to dance to, you know, um, and it's really good. I, I love the soundtrack and I love the movie. Um, but like I, I put um, uh, uh, New Jack City up there with the 70s classic black exploitation films like Sweet Sweetback's Badass Song, uh, yeah. Shaft, um, um, Superfly, Trouble Man, Coffee, Foxy yep. Brown, Black Caesar, Willie Dynamite. It's all there. It belongs there. And now we leave the vault and we have come to the end of the 22nd voyage of uh, the Carmudgeon Rock Report, the big 2-2. Uh, yeah, uh, it's quite an yeah. accomplishment. And uh, like like we've said several times in this episode, folks, this is your podcast. This is for you, the rock and roll iconoclast. Uh, we are congregating together to celebrate the music, to celebrate the memories and to really have a fun, smart conversation that really there's a lost art to it. The more computerized we get and the more uh, indoors uh, we get and the more radio gets taken over by the same 10 songs on every single station yeah. on the dial. Uh, and the fact that there's only like one rock station per town. I'm in Houston. We only have like one classic rock station, one modern rock station, and they both suck. Uh, this is your <laughs> podcast. This is where you get to live uh, and remember and celebrate rock and roll and uh, all of the associated genres. Remember to catch us at curmudgeonrock at gmail.com. Drop us a line there. Uh, we're on Twitter at Curmudgeon Pod, and very, very, very soon, as in uh, maybe by the time this episode drops, we will have a uh, invite-only Facebook group to celebrate our community. So, as we come to the end of another episode of the Curmudgeon Rock Report, let's leave you with a thought: Nirvana's Nevermind is often considered the number one album of the '90s. We're not totally inclined to disagree with that, but we will assert that at least at that time in the early 90s, Pearl Jam was more culturally relevant. How? Well, that's something we will be talking about in our next episode, on episode 23, and we will have a special guest to lead us through the discussion. Stay tuned, and in the meantime, stay rude, stay crude, stay sophisticated, and catch us where you catch all the podcasts.